Welcome to Adversarial Learning. Code of ethics is beneficence, veracity and non-maleficence, autonomy and confidentiality, social justice and procedural justice and fidelity. Fidelity. Joel here. Uh, it's been a while, and that's mostly my fault. It's also partially the fault of our podcasting service provider. What happened is we recorded an episode quite a while ago, and the service provider really screwed up all the tracks, and it required a lot of really intricate editing to get the podcast into a listenable state. Uh, I hate editing. I really hate intricate editing, and so I've really been dragging my feet on it you know, to, to the dismay of all of you uh, loyal listeners and also to the dismay of Andrew, who's been yelling at me pretty consistently for the past uh, while. Um, so anyway, uh, I just want to apologize to you that it's taken me so long to get this out there. I know you've been waiting eagerly for it. Um, and even more than that, I want to apologize to our guest, Sean, who you'll meet in a minute. He sat down and took the time to do this podcast with us, and then I literally took me months to get it put together and published and i feel really guilty about that um but it turns out it's a pretty interesting episode and i think you'll enjoy it so uh i hope you'll enjoy it hey everybody uh it's joel and i'm here with andrew hello um and as has become our custom we're doing another episode on data ethics our guest this week is sean wheeler who's a data scientist who came to our attention when he wrote a blog post that was, uh, let's say, critical of the current push for an industry-wide data ethics code. And as Andrew and I also tend to be critical of this push, uh, we found the blog post interesting and we thought we would invite Sean to come on the podcast. So welcome, Sean. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, do, do, do you want to uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, Our sure. listeners? Yeah. So uh, I've been a data scientist for about 10 years. I actually started out as a cultural anthropologist. That's where my formal training is. Um, hacked myself into a data scientist working for the Department of the Army, working on strategic analysis issues for the Afghanistan-Pakistan conflict. Um, since that time, I've worked in uh, asset management, worked in educational travel, uh, worked in education, particularly in charter schools. Um, and now I work for a company uh, called Blasis Digital. It's an advertising and marketing uh, tech firm. Well, there are a lot of ethics involved in that, I'm sure. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I should probably sit up front that anything I say shouldn't be taken as the opinion of my employer. Oh, really? Okay. Well, uh... <laughs> that, that's the official motto of the podcast. So yeah. <laughs> uh, anything I say is, should not be taken uh, as the motto of my employer either. So um, tell us, what. Uh, why don't you give us the gist of, of your essay about data ethics for people who haven't sure. read it? So what, what really prompted me to, to start thinking about it was uh, DJ Patil's invitation uh, to data scientists to participate in the uh, sort of the data ethics version of the Hippocratic Oath, is the way they build it, um, that was sponsored by the Data for Good Exchange and Bloomberg and Data for Democracy. Um, I remember that, yeah. Yeah. I, I made a very vulgar tweet about that. <laughs> As I as I started, and I, I went into it thinking, okay, this could be interesting. I'd like to get uh, get involved in it. So I joined the Slack channel and, and tried to uh, um, to get involved. And it quickly became apparent that I I couldn't 
support the product as as they were developing it. Um, and I think my the the biggest issue I had with it is that it and other ethics endeavors that I've seen since I've started looking into it more are, I, for lack of a better term, they're what you could call cheap talk. There's no uh, implementation plan or even implementation possibility. There's no possibility for enforceability. And the problem with cheap talk is that it actually creates systemic risk. For example, if your ethics guidelines are simply something that the only cost to adopting them is saying, yes, I'm, I, I'm signing on to this, then it really actually destroys your ability to differentiate ethical practitioners from unethical practitioners because either of those two groups can do the same thing, just say, yes, I, I believe in it. And it's when like, you- like- like putting a brake pedal in a car that actually doesn't connect to any mechanical braking system. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, it, so that that's my issue is that it's it actually has the efforts I'm seeing so far, in my opinion, actually have a, a potential to do harm to the profession and to the people who rely on the profession by making it harder instead of easier to differentiate ethical from unethical practices. Does data science need an industry wide code of ethics? I keep going back and forth on that. I think that a code of ethics can be a useful thing in only really one situation. Everyone who talks about this in, on the on the data side uh, or the, the, the data science side tends to point to the Hippocratic Oath as as kind of an example. We, like, people keep saying we need a data Hippocratic Oath. But I mean, is it, so is the Hippocratic Oath anything beyond do no harm, first do no harm? Actually, is that, is not, that is not part of the Hippocratic Oath. Right. <laughs> um, the, the original Hippocratic Oath, which is actually no one, not even doc, no doctors adopt the original Hippocratic Oath. Um, they adopt a, if they adopt anything, it's usually a, um, a version that was kind of put together um, by a dean of a medical school back in the 60s. But the the original, but actually, we, we can come back to that, but the if you take doctors, like the medical profession as sort of the example, since that's what a lot of people in these discussions are doing, if you're going in for, say, surgery, and you want to make sure that your doctor doesn't, like, steal and sell your kidneys or do something equally unethical, you basically have three ways of ensuring that that doesn't happen. One is you have a very robust legal and uh, regulatory framework in place to make sure that, that, that those kinds of things would be caught and punished. Mm-hmm. Or you're able to find other people who have had the experience of working with that doctor, and you basically get them to vouch for the doctor, or you take the doctor's word for it. Now, that first option is not really an option for the tech industry in general. Like the, that, that kind of heavy regulatory and legal framework simply doesn't exist. Well, and I, I mean, I there there are plenty of um, you know indemnity clauses, and, and there are plenty of ways to get to get uh, satisfaction if you if you did have a problem with a data professional. There are some, yes. There's no consistency. Okay. And so if we're if we're talking about the the profession in general or the industry in general, um, it, it's simply too fractured at this point to be able to rely on a, a single set of principles. And in fact, those aren't the principles that most of these ethical frameworks are looking at. Oh. Um, most- <clears throat> Can I ask a question? Yeah. You've sort of framed this in terms of, in the doctor situation as we need something so that consumers can feel comfortable going to doctors without being taken advantage of. Yes. But I, 
that doesn't feel to me that analogous to data scientists because people are not choosing to do business with data scientists the way they're choosing to do business with doctors, say. Yes. Although, so, so like, I, I may choose to have a Facebook account or not have a Facebook account, but in the end of the day, I'm making that decision based on Facebook's policy and what I think Facebook will do, not on, you know, what I, whether every data scientist has sworn this pledge or, or whatnot. But think of it maybe this way instead of thinking of it as you being the customer and Facebook being the provider, think of it as Facebook being the customer. And the data scientists Facebook hires being the provider. Okay. So if, if, if we're looking at this in terms of who the practitioner is, we're looking at, I mean, you can call them data scientists, data analysts, whatever you, whatever labels work well time being, but it, it's those people who are actually designing the systems. And yes, they have to design them within a, a context of whatever organization is paying for it. And given the needs and the wants of the customers and things like that, but we're really talking like, we're, we're talking about people who design the systems and handle that data. How can we ensure that they are going to do so in a way that doesn't lead to systematically uh, averse consequences? But isn't Facebook the, the one who's more likely to ask them to steal the kidneys? Yes. Rather than look for protection that they won't? And that that's actually the, the point. So one of them is that um, if you have ethical practitioners, then you have people who one will refuse to do the, to steal the kidneys, so to speak, or can point out when they see other people doing so, if they're not part of the company. Right? That, that's really, without a, a, a consistent legal framework that can really be relied upon across the industry, the only way you can actually develop that kind of trust is by being able to vet the individual practitioners. But I think actually the, the real issue, like I said, most of the, these ethical frameworks that people are trying to come up with aren't dealing with the steal your kidneys type of problems. They're dealing with the accidentally damage your kidneys and not realize it kind of problems. Like the, it, it, something like Compass. Like that, that's one of the, one of the examples um, that, that many people are bringing up. The Compass algorithm that was shown to system when they were trying to identify uh, recidivism, likelihood, things like that, it was disproportionately targeting minorities. Now, the people who... This is the one they use for parole decisions? Yes, yes. And um, the people who designed that algorithm, as far as I, I know, as far as any of us knows, did not go in saying, how can we make sure that more minorities stay in prison? There wasn't an, a, an, an explicitly malign intent what you did, we were we were dealing with something that had an ethical consequence. Well, they were they were just the they were just trying to trying to codify the actual human uh, human practice of putting more minorities uh, uh, in prison for longer, right? Exactly, and they they, they designed it poorly. Same thing with uh, I mean Bloomberg a while ago uh, went through and analyzed all the different cases where uh, Amazon offered decided to offer same day service to uh, different zip codes. And they found that they were systematically excluding uh, the poorest and most minority heavy zip codes in a lot of metro areas. And it turns out that what Amazon was doing was saying, well, how many people have signed up for our subscription service anyway? We will offer those areas same-day delivery service first. Is that ethical? Without thinking, yeah. Yeah, without thinking, are we systematically biasing against certain populations when we do that? In all of those cases... We're not dealing 
with, we're dealing with an ethics issue, but the problem is a competency problem, a, a design problem. Well, I mean, but in, in that specific and, case, if, if, I mean, I, you could argue that it makes better business sense for Amazon to give more, you know, to take a loss on a, on a neighborhood that they're going to actually make a profit on and, and not do that in a neighborhood where they're not. Yes. Yes, you could argue that. But I, I think that in most of the cases that as I read through the different ethical frameworks, particularly the one that, that uh, the uh, Data for Good Exchange came up with, um, the kinds of principles they're espousing are not are not things that are designed to mitigate explicitly unethical behavior. Right, okay, but they're designed, <clears throat> they're designed to, but, but this is a good example. The Amazon one is a good example where I think that those folks would probably say it's unethical for Amazon to do that because it, it promotes a societal uh, societal imbalance and unfairness, right? Yeah. So it's not like it's not like they're they're saying, well, you you need to prevent death and, and accidental kidney loss and things like that. But we need to we need to have uh, progressive values perpetuated by everything that data scientists do. Yeah, there's a, there's a pretty hefty assumption of a, of a of a value or a moral good that's baked into to that. Yep. And the thing is, like, I, I think that's a so that's one of the difficulties. I mean, the the, the the principles that that are espoused are things like I'm not I, when I've read them, they don't feel that well defined, like transparency, meaning you know. So, so are we talking about the the manifesto for data practices? Is that the document they came up with, or is that separate? <coughs> yeah, that's one. That one, as well as the community principles on ethical data sharing, um, they're they're both so, being maintained. So yeah, there's there's twelve principles, and um, you know a lot of them are pretty pretty vanilla, I would say. As data teams, we aim to one use data to improve life for our users, customers, organizations, and communities. Yeah. I mean, okay, that's like. There's a lot of. <laughs> there, well, yes, that one of the issues, and it's actually something that I I don't take too much issue with because it was, is that yeah a lot of like that one you just mentioned, I can't think of anyone who would say no. I don't want to improve. Well, let's. I mean, people. let's use a concrete example. I really like that Amazon example. Um, so are they improving the life of their community by, by doing that? Uh, you could yeah, argue that they're not, they're not improving uh, the lives of folks in bad neighborhoods. Uh, but, you know, when it really comes down to it, um, the, the data scientist's role at a company uh, is going to be dictated by the, by the business goals. And the business goals... Well, there's a number seven there, which is recognize and mitigate bias in ourselves uh, and in the data we use. So uh, you, you could argue that that's in violation of, of rule okay. seven. Uh, although, you know, keeping 12 rules in your head at all times is is a little bit uh, <laughs> tricky, especially when they're all kind of, most of them are kind of wishy-washy. I, mean, I keep doing yeah. evil in my mind, and that's about it. Well, it's funny. When I was, I was at a startup uh, for a while, and very early on, and we went through this value setting exercise, and it, it was, I did not like it, but we, we sat kind of all the leaders of the company in a room uh, with some facilitator and said, you know, what, what are the values that, that we stand for, and let's put them on a coffee mug, and they were all like, be creative, you know, do teamwork, things like that, where they were just like useless, they were like kindergarten values, but also, uh, and so, you know, I, I'm a jerk wherever I go, and I was a jerk in this meeting, and I said, look, when I want values of the company, I want something where when I have a hard decision to make, I can point at the coffee mug and say, you know what, uh, this is a tough decision, but the values of the company clearly say 
this is what we should favor. You know, to the extent we have values, I, I feel like they should play that kind of role. And, you know, be creative does not play that role. And, you know, be a good team member does not play that role either. And so, yeah, I, I was not popular for that stand. But I still have the mug as a reminder. <laughs> And I, I agree with that, that the, the values they've listed out there, I mean, let's even say we accept all of them. Say, let's say that you can even keep all of them in your head and that you truly believe them. That wouldn't have prevented Amazon from doing what it did. It wouldn't have prevented Compass from doing what it did. It wouldn't have actually avoided any of the ethical problems that are ostensibly the reason people are talking about creating a death, uh, uh, an ethics uh, oath or, or, or practice in the first place. Well, I mean, but, the, but if you say that rule seven is to eliminate bias, um, here's, there's a question here. I mean, there, you can imagine that there's a knob that you can turn at Amazon or, or you know, in a, in a, a parole hearing where the, the knob turns down bias. And, you know, so for Amazon, it would mean that you would do more shipping to, to neighborhoods where you don't have many subscribers to Prime. Um, in, in, in the hearings, you would, you would turn down the bias and, and you would, you would keep more, you know, non-minorities in jail longer or, you know, not put minorities in, in jail longer. But there's a, there's a point with Amazon say where, you know, the, there's a threshold where Amazon would start losing money. So does the data scientists need to eliminate bias to that level? How much bias needs to be eliminated? I feel like that that's almost beside the point. Because that all assumes that the data scientist has built that knob in. Yeah. Like the, the, whole, the existence of that principle that you should eliminate bias assumes that you've built it in. The problem with these different examples that, that we've been talking about is that they didn't know that that knob was even a possibility. Yeah. Like they, they had designed the thing without even realizing that it could have these ramifications. And therefore, even if you say we're going to eliminate bias... They couldn't have because they didn't realize they were baking it in in the mm -hmm. first place. Yes. And that's where, you know, rule number nine, consider carefully the ethical implications of choices we make when using data and the impacts of our work on individuals, individuals in society comes in. That it was unethical of them to not build that knob in because they violated rule yeah, nine. But, it, but again, was it unethical of them? Like if they, if they had said, well, we could consider how this impacts minority populations, but nah, we're not going to do it. Let's just ship. Then yes, I actually, I, I'd feel off the top of my head. I think I'd probably feel pretty comfortable saying that's kind of unethical okay. as well, but that wasn't their problem is that they didn't even, they didn't know what right. they didn't know. And, and, and that's what an ethical oath, at least in the way that it's designed, that this kind of, like the data uh, manifesto is designed. It doesn't solve for that problem, which actually is the biggest ethical problem we're dealing with. But it seems like most of the like high-profile examples I can think of, the Taybot or you know the facial recognition that only works on white faces, or the ImageNet thing that said that predicted that black faces were gorillas, things like that. Every single one of them was not someone sat down and decided to. Uh, build a system that did that it's that they build a system using other criteria and that was an emergent property that they forgot to consider exactly, right which is why i don't think that the industry has an ethics problem i think it has a competency problem that, that that's a so, so let me issue. Uh, well, uh, sure I, I i don't know that i disagree especially having done you know a lot of interviews uh recently but um there are a lot of people you know on twitter and also on twitter who 
seem to be really clamoring for this ethics code. Is it your sense that most data scientists want an ethics code, or is it just that you know a small number do and they're and they're pretty loud about it? I think most data scientists don't care. Um, that that's just based on my own experience talking with people on my own team and, and people I know in the industry. Most of them had no idea this thing even existed until I started yelling about it. Um, and they, some of them had seen kind of the, the invitations for people to participate. I, I actually think it's a little bit concerning that uh, in, in particularly with the data, the manifesto for data practices, it, they, when they talk about it, they keep saying this is a community create, like the community agreed on this. The community um, created this. The community was a few organizations and then a few other satellites who, who came in and, and worked on it for some time. It's like 20 um, people, right? That, I think it's probably more than that, to, to be fair. I, I, I think... Well, the authors, they have a list of authors, and the list of authors for this manifesto is about... It looks closer to 30 or 40, yeah. but yeah. But only two of them have been guests on our podcast. Well, so. I mean, even with those 30 and 40, I, 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 I'd say be generous and say, let's say even there's... 10 times more than that that gave input or, or, or signed on or anything like that. That's still far, far short from a, a good representation of the industry. Especially, um, I mean, and, especially and so because, to, you know, the, if you're talking about medicine, you know, the human body has a certain, you know, finite known quantity of things that can go wrong with it. At this point, we're still working on fixing those. But in this field, there are myriad uh, things that can go wrong or need to be done with, with data for different types of organizations. I, I, it's not even a well-defined problem. Well, the other thing that, you know, sort of uh, rubbed me a little bit the wrong way was that uh, when they announced this, they said, you know what, we're going to devote a channel to it in the data for democracy Slack. So like everyone come join. So one, I'm, it's not clear to me that data for democracy would have, would have approved my request to join. But that said, at the time they did that, data for democracy already had thousands of members who, you know, were really into data for democracy. So even if, you, whatever, a few dozen hear about it and join that channel, that channel is going to be dominated by the data for democracy crowd and is going to reflect what people who are really into yeah, data for if, democracy yeah, if, want rather what than what, what about data scientists, scientists who work for right? <laughs> for instance. I mean, that that was my, some of my, I, I don't want to, to slam on data for democracy because they're, they're doing good work. But when I, when I got in there, yeah, that's fine. Andrew and I can handle that part of it. They, they had, they had already determined the structure of the product when they invited the wider community to yeah. come participate. I do think that was a, a design flaw in their process. But, um, I, I found like when they said it's, it's like they put out the invitation saying, Hey, we think the industry needs a car so we can get to a new place we need to build a car. And I said, yes, I agree. As an individual data practitioner, I want to build a car. So I joined their channel and found out everyone was building a house. And then I said, okay, I thought we were building a car. That's really all I'm interested in. Can you still use me? And they said, yes, absolutely. We can use someone with your perspective. Would you like to work mm -hmm. on the kitchen or the bathroom? Like they, they, they had already set up the structure of what was going to be an okay uh, way to participate in this process of um, of creating a, an ethics guideline, and there there was no way to incorporate uh, input outside of that. I do think that that was a design issue with their process, but I, I feel like even like the larger issue beyond what the just the data for democracy thing 
was that especially in a a field that is as ill-defined as data science is, um, where we we really have so much that we still don't know. I think creating a set of rules about what is good or bad or right or wrong is just fraught with implementation as well as actually ethical yeah. difficulties. By what right do you decide that yeah. right or wrong for someone else? That's actually why uh, in some of my earlier pieces, I I very much have come to appreciate the original uh, well, Hippocratic Oath because it didn't, design, it didn't say, here's what's right or wrong. What it actually said was, here is stuff as an individual doctor you have to do. It was concrete action items. And the idea was, if you did all of those things, then you had basically proven that you were an ethical practitioner because an unethical practitioner wouldn't be willing to pay that cost of having to do all those things. And I think that's actually a cleaner basis for an, eth- for an ethical framework. Isn't part of the challenge also that at least right now, in order to be a doctor, you have to legally, you know, be approved as a doctor. And so that makes it very easy to make it a requirement of being a doctor that you agree to abide by this pledge. But there's there's no analog for data scientists. Anyone can be a data scientist. Yeah, well, they're, they're, yeah, there's a much heavier credentializing happening in the medical field. So, I mean, if you imagine, how did you... If we try to imagine how did people come to trust doctors a couple hundred years ago, like b- before any of these organizations existed, that's really the kind of environment that data science. Well, doctors, in you know, right from now. the very beginning, definitely always had explainable models. You know, um, they always had full transparency, right? <laughs> this is a leech. It's going to take all the bad blood out of you. Yeah, I, I wouldn't agree with that. Like, years ago, like. They, they believed there was this little thing inside of you called a homunculus, and that's what actually guided a lot of your actions. Like, there, there was all kinds of crazy stuff. That's that's why leeching and bleeding and things like that happened. <laughs> well, I mean, I, my my doctor tells me, you know what, like, uh, eat, follow the paleo diet. That's the healthiest diet. And my doctor before that said, you know what, eat a lot of whole grains. That's the healthiest diet. Um, so, so presumably one of them is wrong, but we have modern medicine and science. We don't, and, we don't understand. The thing is, like, a doctor... And this maybe I think is the the core problem, the core challenge for for data science is with medicine, a doctor's reputation is built based on whether or not on average people who go to that doctor either get better if they weren't doing well or don't get worse if they were doing well. (laughs) Like there's – the doctor reputation is built upon the outcomes. If tons of people go to a doctor. Yeah, if, if tons of people go to doctors and like all of them get sicker or die, people will stop going to that doctor. But we don't have an agreed upon set of like, what is the value data science is supposed to offer? Usually when I hear people talk about it, they say things like, well, it offers insight, which is really a, a, a non-KPI. Like there's there's no way to measure that, it. So insight is the uh, Dr. Um, Phil and, and or Dr. So, Oz of the data science world. <laughs> yeah, it could be. <laughs> like, I, I think that that's part of the... The challenge, and, and again, I think that goes back to the the problem that this isn't an ethics issue; it's a competency issue. How do you assess someone's competency? And so, why do you think people are so intent on framing it as an ethics issue? Um, because it's cheap talk. It's a, it's an easy win. It's actually it's what it's something that allows you to build up your reputation on something other than actually doing your job well, um, which is. 
So, so which is why I think it's unethical. Um, but I, I think a lot. I think a lot of people jump on because it's an interesting issue. They they see things that they think are wrong in society, and they say, "Well, how can I? How can I try to right those wrongs, or how can I at least not contribute to them?" I think there's a lot of honest impulses behind it. But I think a lot of the designing, like it, it can become. When I when I worked for the Department of the Army, it's what we called a self licking ice cream cone. Something it can easily become something that exists simply to perpetuate itself and doesn't actually serve any other purpose. And I, I think a lot of these ethics codes, a lot of the people who are the heaviest drivers seem to be people who are actually going to school or writing books on ethics. They're like that I, they they build their reputation based on talking about it rather than creating demonstrably okay. beneficial outcomes. So so let me let me ask let me ask you this. Uh, if if I stand out there and I say, you know what, it's important that we as an industry come together and get serious about ethics, I sound like like a big virtuous person. Um, but if I come out there and say, it's important that we as an industry get together and uh, get serious about competency, then I just kind of sound like a, a jerk. Is, is that yeah, some of it? Yeah, I think so. It, it, virtue signaling is costless. That, that's, that's what makes it so problematic, is, is that any costless behavior can easily become a way to uh, create more noise amidst the signal. Um, a lot of people can say, look how ethical I am because I've signed this manifesto or I have adopted these practices. And people go, oh, wow, they're really conscientious. This is someone I should trust, even though that person has not demonstrated any value add. Whereas if you say, so I, we should be worrying about competency, you automatically have skin in the game because the first question is going to be, who are you to talk to me about competency? How can you prove your competence? And you actually have to do something to show it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I suspect DJ Patil can prove his competency in data science. Uh, that's not really in question. I'm, I, don't, I don't know that I would take that for granted. Uh, okay, he, he has a pretty impressive record of accomplishments. I'll, I agree. But I, I, no, I, I don't mean to say, no, I don't think he's incompetent. <laughs> I don't think he's incompetent. That's not what I'm saying. I, I'm saying that when... If we're going to create a set of guidelines, we the people who create those guidelines, policy, if you will, need to have skin in the game. They need to show that mm-hmm. if they are wrong, they will suffer uh, consequences. Like they, they, they will have to pay something for that. And in that particular case, I don't think he's demonstrated that any more than anyone else has. Like the, it, it's... Uh, the- yeah, so it's, it's not I, it's not something about overall competency. It's that if you are going to dictate policy, it needs to be dictated by someone who stands to lose if they are wrong or if they implement the wrong policy. Have you read Skin in the Game? Uh, I haven't read Skin in the Game yet. I've read everything else Talib has written, but I haven't actually bought the book yet. It's very good. I'm halfway through it. It's it's hilarious. I've laughed out loud more times reading that book than uh, any book I can remember in yeah, recent I, history. I, I enjoy his writing, but I also think Nassim Talib is probably the most... He, he's he's laid out the most coherent basis for defining an ethics framework, even though he, he rarely talks about it explicitly that way. Because if we're talking about ethics, we're talking about stipulating for other people what is right and what is wrong. And the only way you can do that ethically is if you're putting your skin in the game so you can be basically punished if you, if well, you do it wrong. Um, if, well, if I mean, we don't do it that way, then it's, it's not, not just, it's not just the skin in the game idea. It's like these, these manifestos don't have any, uh, that I have seen, don't have any concrete guidelines for, for what to do. I mean, they say, you know, eliminate bias. And like I, like I alluded yes, to, that, that, what does that mean? I mean, 
do you is is there a threshold below which you you need and how how would you define an amount of bias how would you define an amount of transparency and what does transparency mean there are lots of really i mean it looks completely undefined to me yeah, I, so i mean as far as what to do i mean that that's that's so that's completely lacking and I, that's why i'm unimpressed by by these efforts so far i i, I would agree so so if if the committee met and said, you know what, Sean, uh, we like your ideas. You're in charge of, of writing the first draft of the Code of Ethics, and then we'll uh, vote on it. Uh, what would you put in it? Um, <laughs> I don't know yet. I, I actually, I, I'm, I've been writing up some ideas on that right now. But I, I don't think that a single person is probably very competent to be able to do that. I think as a first draft, something that's actually very similar to the original Hippocratic Oath would be a good idea. Um, if you look at that, they were things that didn't have to do directly with ethics. They had to do with proving that you were competent enough that people could trust you. And so it was things like um, in the original Hippocratic Oath, you were required to teach anyone who came and asked you to teach them. Now, think about that. Oh, yeah. boy. Uh, I can't sign now, up now, for that. Now, think about that. If you're a doctor, <laughs> like if you make really – if your day job is healing people or helping them, things like that. You have to be good enough at your job that you can actually sacrifice time to teach people who ask to be taught and still survive in practice. That means you have to be a particularly yeah. competent doctor. Um, another one was you weren't allowed to uh, reap side benefits from your practice. If you went into someone's house, you weren't allowed to establish contacts for a side business. You weren't allowed to take advantage of information that didn't have to do with, with actually helping your, your client things like that. You were giving up a benefit because I mean, normally you walk into someone's house, you find out a good investment opportunity. That's not unethical to take advantage of that, but like they gave you the information. But the Hippocratic Oath said, mm -hmm. as a doctor, you have to give up that benefit. It would be okay normally. It's not okay for a doctor. Now, all of these things. So I, this is reminding me of, of some ethics training that I've had at, at companies. So that, that's an interesting thing that, that uh, actually companies, when they get big enough, you know, recognize the liability that they're taking on by, by, by asking their customers to open up their own private data stashes and, and caches of their own customers or their own operations. And so a company large enough uh, requires their employees to go through training for ethics as far as, you know, deals and how to how to report um, gifts and uh, things like that and sure but you you said it your, well you said it yourself like a lot of that is really liability training mm -hmm. some of it is ethics training right like you know well, don't accept gifts from people who can influence you and cause you to make yeah. decisions that are not in the company's best interest yeah. that's ethics training but also you know the handling of data is is covered pretty well too you know you you need to delete it when you're done you can only use it for the purpose it was uh, required by the customer and things like that. So that, that's actually covered pretty well too. So let me ask you this uh, question for both of you. Um, have you ever had to do anything on the job that you considered unethical and what did you do? Uh, I have not. I left my job with the army. <laughs> um, they, 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 they had hired me to help them with strategic analyses. So I did things like I, the, the team I worked with created the, the first, and at that time, to my knowledge, it was the only statistical model of improvised explosive device outcomes that the government had ever done. Um, I, I did analyses of how insurgents respond to large-scale infrastructure projects, things like that. Um, but after a time, uh, I, I was brought into my manager's manager's office and was told, 
I don't want you working on this stuff anymore. I want you to work on targeting operations, which is basically how do you identify individual people who will then be subject to polar capture missions. Um, and I, I had several levels of ethical concern about that. Um, one, the, the fact that I would literally be deciding or making recommendations about who should be captured or killed. Um, but also from the strategic analyses I had done, I had very grave uh, doubts about the actual operational effectiveness of doing that. It's when people talked about the Afghanistan conflict, even soldiers who had been there in the field talked about whack-a-mole. <laughs> that if, if you get rid of one person, they just quickly get replaced by another. And so I, I had both those kind, kinds of concerns. And when I raised them, I was told, no, this is what, like, you do this or you get out. So I, I got out. Um, I, 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 um, that's probably much much heavier than any of my examples. Yeah, it's like I, 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 I've had smaller issues where, like, some EVP of sales said, well, I want you to make up data because I want the uh, graph that you're making for my presentation to look a, a certain way. I don't like how flat it is right now. I want it to be steeper. And I had to say it's not – you can get someone else to do that, but I'm not going to do that. So there's – Just chop the y-axis off. Man. Exactly. So there's, like, there's lots of examples of that where, I mean, people who, who are used to using data simply to prove their point get mad when data doesn't prove their point, and then they want a, a way for it to do that. I think those are common ethical examples. Um, I, I, I have, I've had more of those than I think I can count. Have you followed this, uh, the Cornell Food Lab guy who just, he hacks all his results? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> it's it sort of, it. Uh, I, all the articles I've read, I can't tell. Uh, I think no one has a great sense of whether he does this on purpose or whether he's just really, really bad at statistics. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a weird gray area. I'm, I'm inclined to believe the latter, actually. I I. Like I said, I, I think we I think we have far fewer ethical concerns than we think we do, and far more competency concerns. But the, I mean, the language I've I read him use with his uh, with his assistants was sounded very much like um, you know business business level person who wanted to see a better chart. Yes, torture the data until something comes out of it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'll tell you anything. Well, how about you, Joel? Have you had? I, 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 I haven't had ethical, uh, unethical requests. I mean, unless you, you, you. Uh, count. I guess if you're a management consultant, you have to really suppress that urge, right? Yeah, I mean, unless you count like you know, encouraging customers to continue paying for an overpriced service, you know, longer. If that, if that's unethical, then yes, all the time. I mean, I, I've had, I've had some that were like idiosyncratic to me. That like, if I told you them, you wouldn't consider them uh, all that unethical. Like. Um, you wouldn't like uh, a long time ago. I used to work in uh, in finance at a, at a large uh, enterprise software company, um, and, and one of my roles, or one of, part of my job, was to do these really complicated analysis of how many effective licenses customers would have. And that's because they would sign like an enterprise agreement for twenty thousand seats, and then they'd also have these other individual licenses, and some of them had like two year upgrade options and. Anyway, it, you could spend like all day making a spreadsheet to figure out how many effective licenses they have. And then what happened was um, the salespeople would take these analyses that I made and go in and, and say, hey, you know, based on our analysis, you have 40,000 effective seats uh, for this product. But, you know, we know that you have 50,000 employees. So therefore, there's a 10,000 
uh, license gap. We would hate to call our friends at the Business Software Alliance and no. sick them on you. So um, how about signing this new multi-million dollar enterprise agreement that covers the next you know, five years? Yeah. Um, and so there's, I mean, that's the way the enterprise software industry works or worked at the time. Um, but I always felt uh, kind of gross about it. Um, no, I, I felt really gross about it because these were, I mean, they're big companies, so it's hard to have too much sympathy for them. But um, you know, they weren't trying to violate their licenses. It's just that the, the licensing scheme was so inscrutable that right. it was really hard not to violate them. And then the, I was helping to kind of punish them for not understanding something that was really hard to understand. Yeah. Um, so, so I didn't like that. Um, you know, I was at startups where it was less making up numbers and more, you know, we're coming up with a metric to show how much money we're saving customers. And, you know, the, the marketing people would propose metrics that I found kind of indefensible, not because they were like fake, but because the things they were measuring were not really indicative of customer experience, I felt. And so I had a lot of arguments over, yes, that number looks better, but like the, the savings it represents are not savings that anyone could ever achieve. Here's a, a much more reasonable way that I think is more defensible. Um, and that kind of went around in circles for a, a long time. And I think I, people thought I was a jerk for being so intransigent about that. And I but, think it's, you know, those kind of things. An interesting aspect of this whole ethics discussion is that a lot of the issues we've just been talking about, they aren't data ethics issues. They aren't tech ethics issues. They're, business ethics issues like yeah. all these things i think that's all right these things existed long before data science ever existed and, and like people have been making up numbers for presentations before they even had powerpoint so they, they there's that has been around for a long time i think the challenge that data science poses is that it's not only making it fast it's not only making it possible to more quickly raise those kinds of issues but it's also making them more discoverable it's, it's, leaving. it's almost like the, the joke about computers letting you make mistakes faster, yes. right? Yeah. The, I mean, and, yeah, I think that it, it goes along with sort of the, 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 I don't know, the last several years trend of um, data becoming the new cool thing. And uh, there's a, a lot of bandwagon uh, behavior going on. And it's, um, you know, the, it's, it's, it's almost like, uh, you know, there's just, this is just another thing that people are, are rediscovering again and, you know, trying to make their own. Right. You know, it's everything, you know, GNU parallel has been around forever and we know people are still rediscovering it type of thing. Okay. So, um, let's, uh, let's time travel, you know, five years into the future. Um, and the data ethics folks have won and now you're not allowed to use pandas. You're not allowed to use scikit-learn. Uh, you're not allowed to use NumPy unless you sign the 12 bullet point statement of ethics do you sign it no it's very no i mean I, 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 no good <laughs> sorry sorry sean go ahead no it's just, I, I, that, that's a that's an interesting i i, I don't think that's a uh a, yeah, it's a novel. outcome but i think it's an interesting one to consider is i mean imagine kind of a more scaled back version of you go and apply for a job and they say well have you signed the data manifesto and if yeah. you know them, they or even have not even getting to the point where you can tell a person that, where they they could have gatekeeper questions on the website where it says like, do you have this level of degree? Do you have competency in this coding language? Have you signed the manifesto for data practices? 
And if you don't, you're automatically. So that that actually that actually doesn't bug me. I'm totally cool with that. I think I'm less. In my mind, and so this is sort of a little bit of my position on ethics. Ethics is a very personal thing. And the ethical choices I would make are necessarily different from the ethical choices Andrew would make because we're different people and we have different ethical beliefs uh, on some things. Um, and, and so uh, I think it makes total sense for a person to have a code of ethics. It also makes sense, less so, but I think it makes sense for a company to say, this is our code of ethics. And if you don't agree with it, don't oh. come work here. Um, and, and, and so insofar as I think that's okay, I also kind of don't have a problem with a company saying you must sign the the manifesto if you want to work here as long as i am free to you know start my own company that doesn't enforce that or join a different company that doesn't I totally enforce agree that with everything you just said my question is will requiring someone to sign that manifesto actually give that company the people who have the ethical standards that they want and for all the reasons we no of course not that's why i have a problem with is that it's actually doing damage. It, well, my, my, but there's another, there's another uh, uh, option here, Joel. I mean, in five years, one would hope that, you know, there wasn't just one code of standards. Um, you know, just like there are many different codes of standards for, for law and, and medicine, um, you know, there, there can be competing standards of ethics. Um, so, so to, to give your, so, I agree. But if you look at like the situation for codes of conduct for tech conferences, for oh, instance, yeah. people get, no, no, there's, there are a lot of them and people get really bent out of shape if you choose the wrong one. Yeah. Right. So uh, I don't know if you follow this whole Lambda comp fantasy land code of conduct, but John DeGos put together this one that, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's fun to, th to think about this stuff, read about this stuff, but it's basically, um, you know, he got in a lot of trouble for inviting, you know, Curtis Yarvin to talk at the first Lambda Conf and all this stuff. And so he put in this code of conduct that basically says, um, as long as you don't be mean to anyone while you're here, we don't care who you are and you can speak and we protect all political views, uh, which is cool. But then the people who have the, um, you know, the opposite code of conduct, which is, we don't want anyone at this conference if they've ever done anything you know, offensive, even in their personal life, they fight with each other a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would follow that, but I, I believe it. <laughs> I think as soon as you create a standard that doesn't require skin in the game, you're going to get a proliferation of standards. Like uh, in the end, the only way you actually win the standards war is creating one that demonstrably leads to better outcomes. And that's something. That's why we have XML and JSON and yeah. CSV and Parquet. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, my code of ethics will forbid YAML. <laughs> so what you're saying is that Andrew and I should sit down and write out our own code of ethics and, and throw it into I the mix. I actually think that would be a, I think, I think that's something that I, I wish data scientists, individual data scientists did more often. Was so a good starting, yeah, a good starting point would be the, you know, the 12, I'm sorry, I'm talking over you. Go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say the, uh, the the good starting point might be take those twelve points, you know, bullet points that that have no measurable outcome or, or you know, uh, 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 way of, of measuring success, and put some kind of metric on them. I, I think that would be an interesting activity because my suspicion is that most, if not all of them, it would be impossible to put a metric on them, a meaningful metric. Yeah, um, so I mean, it could be a good counterexample. Uh, can't measure. Yeah. All right. So we're coming up uh, on the end of the hour, so we should probably uh, start wrapping things up. Uh, Sean, is there anything else about data ethics that 
you wanted to touch on that I forgot to ask about? No, I actually think we covered a wide spectrum of things. This has been fun. Yeah. Is there anything anything you want to ask me and Andrew about? No, I don't think so. Okay, we always give people a chance to ask us questions. Oh, we should make make sure that you get your the, the URL to to at least one of your articles on on here. Oh yeah, we well yeah of course. Um, so uh, why don't you tell people how they can find you online and how they can find uh, you know your writings and thoughts? Uh yeah sure. So um, easiest way to find me is on Twitter um, at Sean W. It's a weird spelling S C H A U N W. And then I've recent I I used to keep my own. Uh, blog on on GitHub, but I've recently moved over to Medium because it's just less hassle. So that's where I'm. I write most of my stuff, and the articles you were talking about are all on my uh, associated with my Medium account. Cool. And we'll we'll, we'll link to all of them in the in the show notes. Great. Yeah. Well, that thanks for coming good. on. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Sean. This has been a, a fun episode, um, and we've enjoyed having you. Cool. Thanks, guys. Confidentiality is to respect the client's right to self-determination with social justice. You'll provide service in a manner that is for the common good. You'll be aware procedural justice. Comply with rules and laws. Fidelity is to respect other professionals. Code of ethics.